Yeah, I mean, I think very simply what I'll say is that there's only so much education that you can get. The real education comes when you interact with clients and you work with them directly. So I encourage all of you guys to have these conversations, understand money stories, understand financial behaviors, because that's really what we're trying to change. Welcome, my friend, to the Conversations for Financial Professionals podcast. I'm your host, Dominique Henderson. And as a veteran of the financial services industry, I was curious to find out why, despite all the good that financial professionals do, that yet the term financial advisor would clear the room so fast at a dinner party. Why was this? And what was this gap between consumers of financial services and the providers of those services? In this podcast, I seek to close this gap by having forward-moving conversations to advance the profession of giving financial advice and provide tools to the next generation of financial professionals to serve their clients at the highest level. You see, as providers of financial services, we have the awesome privilege of partnering with consumers to help change family trees, normalize the creation of wealth, and help the industry as a whole do less harm and more good. So it's time to sit back and enjoy the conversation. This week, we continue with our theme of the talent pipeline in financial services, and we have as our guest Charles D to help us break down the challenges of maintaining a robust talent pipeline. We begin with the barriers to progress. Charles and I have both been around for a while, so I was very curious on his take as to any barriers he foresees in building the talent pipeline and whether or not those barriers are systemic or not. We then move on to the bold promises. There are a lot of initiatives going on by several parties within the industry to try to fix this problem through internships, advisor development programs, and we discuss whether or not any of these initiatives are really paying a part in fixing the problem or if they're just window dressing. Finally, we take a look at the current landscape and we project into the future whether or not this will any of these initiatives or what will actually solve this talent pipeline. A lot of differences in perspective, but a really great talk we had. Nonetheless, it's time to sit back and enjoy the conversation. Welcome to another Conversations for Financial Professionals, where we are shaping the next generation of advice. And today, we have a friend of the podcast, Charles Ad. You are the founder and the visionary of Blueprint 360, a Houston-based RIA with the sole purpose of making financial planning and professional investment management advice available to everyone, regardless of their income or net worth, where you utilize a consulting-based approach to educate and empower your clients to take action and reach their wealth potential without sacrificing their lifestyle. Outside of Blueprint 360, you are involved in several nonprofit and civic organizations you're also the past chair of the FPA Diversity Committee and current member of the Center of Financial Planning Diversity Advisory Task Force, a speaker on a variety of financial planning topics. Charles, you are also been quoted by several publications, including Forbes, U.S. News, and Financial Planning Magazine. Welcome to the podcast, my friend. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm ready for yeah. a good conversation. <laughs> oh, absolutely, man. You know, and I and I have to and I say this. Uh, people get tired of me probably saying this, but. Like, I actually like to read people's bios because I want my bio read. Like, <laughs> those are accomplishments, man. Like, I, I'm all about giving your due. But this topic about the challenges of maintaining a robust talent pipeline, you and I have known each other for at least three years now. And I know we've had this conversation kind of off the cuff, but I'm glad that at this point we get to kind of bring it to a a platform that I think we can get even more perspective on that and just kind of highlight the conversation. I think there's a lot of things that this industry does well, that this profession does well, but there's a lot of room for improvement also. And I kind of think you right. feel the same way. Uh, so Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to get into it. Let's talk about, um, let's talk about barriers to progress. Um, I think one of the things you and I have seen since we've been around the block a long time, like we've, we've seen things, we're not new to this industry. What, are, what, are, what is your take on some of the barriers that exist to building the pipeline? And when I talk about the pipeline, let's define some things. When I talk about pipeline, I'm talking about people that are young men and women or older mm-hmm. that are willing to come into this profession and do good work. 
I just don't see enough of those people getting opportunity. And so I wonder what your take is on that. Yeah, man, I I think I see things very similar to you. But the one thing that I'll say that I might believe a little bit differently than you is I think the pipeline is actually quite strong. I think there's a lot of individuals now, 2022, that are aware of financial planning. I think there are people that are aware about the CFP designation. I think they're aware of the income potential that you can make in the space. When I became a financial advisor back in 2010, that was not known to me, right? So I think what I would say, I think we still have an issue with companies hiring the right talent, right? Mm. So when they go out to look for minorities' talents, they just hire a minority versus hiring the right fit. I think we have an issue with compensation and the compensation models. Um, when I came into the space, my base salary was $2,000 a month, right? Nowadays, I don't know too many people who are willing to accept that, right? Um, the other thing that I'll say is you have financial planning firms that are in locations that are not where minorities live. So I'm in Houston, so I'm fortunate. But let's say Palo Alto, California, <laughs> great market, a lot of great businesses around there, but maybe not a lot of diversity. So as a minority, would I want to live there off of $2,000 per month? That's my salary. Even if it's $50,000 or $60,000, can you have a quality level of life? So I think there's a lot of issues that are more broader than what we talk about, what prevents people from taking the leap of faith, joining a firm, and being successful. Those are just a few of them. So, okay, so along those lines, uh, a follow-up question. So would you say some of these or a lot of these barriers that you name, let's say compensation um, yep. and whatnot, do you think these are systemic? And and, and if so, the, the origin of those, when we're talking about a systemic problem, we've got to talk about other, you know, I, I guess you would say other things, tentacles that attach to that. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So I definitely think it's systemic um, because it's part of the industry that we're in. But one thing I'll say is also part of history. And when I say history, I recall speaking to my old boss at my old firm. Um, I came into her practice after she's been around for 20 years. And I thought that I was doing work on her, you know, cases with her, that I was going to be compensated what I thought was fair, 50-50. And she laughed in my face and said, Charles, no way. I've been working with my clients for 20 years before you got here. There's no way I'm going to give you 50%. So I think the way a lot of the older advisors came up into the space, you eat what you kill. Mm-hmm. So now paying someone a salary out the gate, $50,000, $60,000, that's a difficult proposition for a lot of old-time advisors. Right. That's the first thing I'll say. Yeah. The second thing I would say is at the end of the day, this profession is all about who can you attract and the people you're trying to attract need to have money. Right. So whether you're the best planner or not, planning is like a commodity. People don't want to accept that, but I think it's like a commodity. It's really about do you have the people skills? Do you know people with money that you can bring to your firm to add to your firm's bottom line? If you don't, then you won't be successful. Let's pause there. Pause there. You bring up a really excellent point that I think a lot of people gloss over when they think about the notion of I want to be a financial planner. I want to help people get to their financial goals and their dreams. But there's only so many. Well, there's two things. There's only so many seats on the RIA fee only bus. Yes. And if you are just in the background creating plans, I mean, there's even a narrower a set of jobs for the, that skill set, because at some point, if the if the firm doesn't have a steady pipeline of clients coming in, there are no financial plans to write. So there's that. Correct. Then yes. a lot of people that are really good planners and probably just really good service advisors, to be honest, they go hang their own shingle and say, I'm going to do this on my own. And they found out that the hard way probably that's a little yeah. it's a little harder than than what they uh, thought. And so I think from both of those tangential standpoints, what I'm kind of bringing into light, and I want you to comment on, is would you say that more people probably find, need to find the the need to partner with people versus go hang their own shingle? What are your thoughts about the allocation of resources? Um, is probably the best way to put that. So again, I have my own firm, but I worked for a company first. I know now, 2022 version of Charles, that I could not have done it 
back in 2010 on my own. I know that very clearly. However, when I left my previous job, I thought I could. Um, so I think that, you know, a lot of people need to be okay working for someone else first. Yes. Right. But more importantly than just being okay working with somebody else, you got to find the right firm for you. So I knew very clearly exactly the type of clients that I wanted to work with. I wanted to work with minorities. I wanted to work with the everyday person who typically had income anywhere between $100,000 and $400,000 household. I wanted to work with families, right? Small business owners. So I was very clear. And I was able to come into a firm that supported that vision that I had for myself versus going to, and again, I'm not trying to knock on any firms, one of these big box wealth management firms who are looking only for assets under management. I was actually able to focus on the planning side, build relationships within the community, get my name out there, speak, do all these things that I enjoy doing. So it fit what I was looking for. And I don't think a lot of people are taking the time to truly find the right fit for them. They're probably chasing the company name or the income that they're making. So that pay cut that I took, although when I tell people I took a 65% pay cut, oh my gosh, that's a lot. What I got in return from experience and education and training and a mentor, listen, you you couldn't, I did not have enough cash to pay for what I received in return. So mm-hmm. for me, that was that investment that I had no problem making because I understood the big picture. And I think right now, a lot of people coming to the profession don't see the big picture. No, no, that's good. Uh, so you're, I, I think I want to hop down this rabbit trail versus the first, the, the question I was going to ask you, which is, how, no pun intended, but what would be the blueprint that you would give these career <laughs> changers <laughs> for uh, this jump? I was just talking about this with an industry friend. Um, and I think you're right in a lot of instances where let's say we got, you know, Joe Smith, who's career changer, mm-hmm. Joe Smith, career changer is leaving mm-hmm. Whatever they're doing, they're making really good money, supporting their family, yada, yada, yada. But they've always wanted to do financial planning, right? And to your point, financial planning is getting to be more of a commodity. Now, granted, I know there's nuances and my firm does it this way and we ask this, but to the client, it's a commodity. Yes. Correct. So um, to that person that's trying to plug in to Joe Career Changer, they have this quote unquote dilemma because they go from salary A and then some percentage of salary A that's obviously less than 100 um, percent while they're making this transition. And so talk about the maybe the skill stack that you created when you did make that 65 or then when you did have that 65 percent pay cut that ended up paying dividends on the back end. Yeah. So I think for me, um, first and foremost, I'm a person who loves talking and I enjoy interviewing people. So when I decided to leave my previous firm, I was an accountant for a big four accounting firm. Um, I interviewed at least 10 different financial advisors. A few of them happened to be minorities. Others weren't to figure out what their job was like, to figure out where I wanted to land. And the thing that I realized very, very quickly and what I was told is, do you want to get money today or do you want experience? Wow. And I said, I want the experience So based off the experience, the second thing that they told me was, Charles, you have to find a firm that will allow you to work day one versus expecting you to be in the background. And what that meant at the time was I probably couldn't go to a big RIA because the partners led a lot of the work. I ended up going to a, for lack of a better word, a insurance based shop. Right. And in our industry today, insurance based shops are frowned upon. Right. right. But that's how you get the dirt up under your fingernails. Exactly. So (laughs) for me, what I was able to do day one, I was responsible for marketing, going out to find my own clients. Day one, I was responsible for assisting in creating the financial plan. So I did all the data gathering. Yes, I had a mentor sit in the meetings with me, but I was in the meeting asking questions, taking notes. Right. I was responsible for reviewing the recommendations and delivering the recommendations to the client with my mentors right by my side. I was responsible for the ongoing servicing of the relationship. So I did everything that my mentor was doing with her million-dollar clients with my, let's be real, $50,000 clients. Let me ask this question and keep keep that thought. Let me ask you this real quick. What were your credentials at this point? I'm using air quotes for everybody that's uh, listening. 
Yeah, so, at so the time, life and health seven sixty six or what were you? So I had the life and health seven sixty six. But again, my credential that I was talking about, and this was me finding a way to spin my skills. I said I was an accountant first. Mm-hmm. So there's one thing that I can guarantee that I know how to do is I can show you how to save money on taxes. So that's always been my spin. So I'm a yep. tax first financial advisor, yep. and I tell my clients from day one, I can show you how to make real money today to free up some cash to invest tomorrow. So that was my sales pitch. Um, and I think based off my background and the company that I used to work for, I can say my company's name and clients were like, oh, you work for them? Okay, I'm going to trust you. Mm-hmm. Versus some other people who weren't, who didn't have that same level of previous experience, they don't get that credibility that I got. So I was fortunate in that regard, yeah. right? But again, I work for a well-known Black-owned firm in the city. So just mentioning the firm's name, mentioning my mentor's name, opened up doors that I think a lot of people um, don't have that same benefit as they choose the firms to go work for. So I was, again, I was very strategic in who I worked for because yeah. I always kept in mind who I wanted my end client to be. If I want to work with minorities, I need to find a firm that specializes in that who has a reputation. And that's what I found. Fortunate, yeah. of course. But I was lucky in that regards. No, I, I think you're, there's a lot of uh, good points here that I think I want to tease out for uh, the aspiring financial professional that's listening. Um, the, the first thing is you, you were strategic. You had a plan. Like there was a Correct. there was a why that you explored, and that led you to a who, which then led you to the how. Because Correct. we learn everything by emulation and imitation. Uh, I would say also the other thing that that stood out with your with your story is the fact that you know. <laughs> And I, <laughs> I have to say this. There's been this great brainwashing in our society about how much knowledge you need. I just had a conversation with a person in my community, and they were like, yeah, I'm working on CFP. I didn't get it the first time. I'm going to try again. And I want to really just concentrate on that. And I'm like, okay, either do it while you're getting experience or go get experience first. Like I've always made – and I was like, this is somebody that has a CFP, and I've been doing this for a while, but – I, I maintain there's three good cases for doing CFP right now. A, you're in a financial planning program at a university and you're super young and you're already learning the stuff. It's probably not going to be any time that it's fresher. So mm-hmm. go ahead and do it. Um, mm-hmm. The other one is if you've got a job opportunity for a firm and it's like, we want you to have the CFP, especially if you want to you know, continue to work here. Well, that's a no brainer because they're probably going to pay for it. And then the yeah. last one is, and I've seen this. People laugh, but I've seen this. I've worked with clients that have been like, I think I want to take those classes just so I can kind of know and how to vet people. If you don't fall in one of those three categories, you need to go get some experience. That's that's what I'm hearing you say. And see, I fell into the second category. I practiced for, I think, five years before I got the CFP. And I never would have got it unless my boss, right? She says, Charles, if you want to be a what we call manager, right? If I want to be responsible for training other people, I had to have that designation, but if she never said I needed that, I wouldn't have got it. Because to this day, I can count on one hand the number of my clients who've asked me if I'm a CFP. Now, in the industry, other advisors, that's our first question. Are you a CFP? Absolutely. But my clients, one hand. And I think that speaks to the larger issue of awareness. And I think in our industry, we focus on the wrong type of awareness. I don't think we focus enough on the public's awareness within the minority population of the CFP. So to me and my business, and I tell the CFP board and people I speak to there all the time, we need more awareness on the consumer side because that drives my desire to get it because the more clients I have asked me for it, the more aspiring advisors I'm going to tell, listen, you need to get the CFP ASAP versus there's some time you can wait on that. So, okay. So uh, let's parse this a little bit because this is, I mean, right now, uh, we're filming this or recording this. Uh, the testing window for the March 2022 is actually today until the 15th. Okay. And so there's a lot of people that run through this. And actually, um, there's a report. I think there were, I want to say, don't quote me on this, but I think the last go round for 2021, there were 1,500 minority CFPs that that okay. that passed the test. And there's 90,000 CFPs now, 90 plus. It's a very small percentage. Let's okay. let's let's let that sit for just a second and go on to something else real quick. Um, the that which is the public perception 
for a CFP, I would say, is probably one of the more recognized amongst designations. But I agree with you that there can probably be more penetration. And let me just ask what I'm trying to ask. The clarifying question is, are you saying that the CFP probably has more weight outside of communities of color? Is that what you're saying? I'm just trying to get that clear. In my experience, absolutely. I think think the more money you have, the more weight you put on that certification because you hear it and you see it more. So when I think about where do I see the CFP conversation, the CFP commercials, watching golf. Yeah. I see it in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. I hear it on podcasts that are geared towards the elite, people mm-hmm. who make over $100,000 per year. Now, mm-hmm. to me, that's not a lot of money. But when you look at the broad spectrum of yeah. minorities' income, yeah. You're looking at maybe 10%, if that, of our population. And then ask ourselves, of the minorities who make 100000 or above, how many of them are actually engaged to catch the ads in those spaces? I would say it's a smaller number. No, that's a good and point. Then, we, then take it one step further, who actually has the wealth, right? The wealth in the minority communities, not the income, the wealth is in yeah. the retiree. The retirees, their experience with money is very, very different. So I can talk to a client who is getting ready to retire. I say, let's invest your money. Well, you know, Charles, I want to keep a lot of it in cash because I remember X, Y, and Z. It's really hard to overcome those money experiences, those past traumas as an advisor because it's like, where does my help come from? And I think if the CFP board and those powers that be who really cares about changing the demographics of our profession, they need to start speaking to the consumer at that point about those specific challenges that they had in the past to change their mindset, to open the doors for some of these flows to benefit the young, aspiring advisors. Because to this day, the biggest issue for, in my opinion, young advisors is where your client's going to come from. Mm Because even if you come to a firm where you get a salary, in order to get advancements, at some point, you're going to be required to bring in clients. And if you can't bring in clients, your bandwidth for promotion and growth Changes drastically. No, I, I agree. That, I said I've said this before. You you're putting a ceiling on your potential earnings if you don't have yeah. some type of business development in your role, uh, which is the reason why. Um, not even a shameless plug uh, in Jumpstart. When I'm teaching people, I'm like, you need to know about marketing. You need to know about the sales process. You need to know how clients come into the door. That this is just, whether you whether you aspire to a client facing job or not, you, you need to understand how this works because you just so much more valuable to the firm. With all the distractions and things vying for your attention on a day-to-day basis, when do you have time to consider what your purpose is? Have you thought about what it is going to take to achieve your goals? After having dozens of conversations with clients, I decided to provide a simple framework on how you can answer those questions. That framework is contained in my book called Assess, Address, and Adjust, a practical guide to becoming unstuck and achieving your goals. Look, if you've ever felt that you're losing the time for money trade and want to start winning in the next 30 days with real practical tips to improve your situation, or if you're not motivated to push through the day because you have a job you don't enjoy, a relationship you're ready to get out of, or just feel like you're not where you want to be in life, this book is for you, my friend. If you're ready to change that uncomfortable level of dissatisfaction that's currently going on in your life and you want the tools to help you get unstuck, then head on over to DomHendersonSR.com slash The Unstuck Book. And for a limited time only, you can get a signed copy by yours truly. Now let's get back to the conversation. I want to I dig in. I want to double tap on something that you said before I move on to these bold promises uh, for fixing all these problems that we just identified. So, um, what is this? What are your thoughts around? Because you mentioned some things about behavioral, basically behavioral finance and the behaviors of clients. Because financial planning as a discipline, totally get it. Sometimes clients get it, and then we do these great financial plans, and then clients don't execute. They don't. There's no actions. And so I wonder what your thoughts are around the topic of financial coaching converging into the space of financial planning, because those two disciplines, let's let's be real. The CFP doesn't really teach you a lot, if any, 
at this point in 2022 in the curriculum, very little about behavioral finance, the psychology part of it, the things that actually motivate people to do the plans that we create. Um, and I wonder where your thoughts are on incorporating more of that or how that needs to really um, dovetail into what we're doing as financial planners. Yeah. So what I'll say is, um, <laughs> oddly enough, when people ask me what I am, I say I'm a financial advisor. But when I talk to industry professionals um, and I outline my process, what I hear more often than not is, oh, you're more like a financial coach. And that kind of caught me off guard because the way I plan for my clients is very hand-holding. I walk them through all the different phases of the financial planning process. So we start with the budget. I actually help my clients create a budget. We pay down their debt. I actually check in with them on a monthly basis to make sure they're making the right payments. So I'm doing a lot of coaching things. So in my practice specifically, I would say my average client first started off with a coaching relationship, then evolved to being a traditional financial planning client. So I think in our space, when I say our space, minority spaces, that's where we have to start because that's where our clients are. If I only talk to clients that had a million dollars, right? I'm not going to have any clients because I don't know where they are. I can't find them. They're difficult to find. But I'll also say on the back end, I have clients now who are partners at big four accounting firms making half a million dollars a year, right? That's base salary. And they're telling me now they're getting phone calls by Merrill Lynch. They're being phone calls from UBS, all these big companies trying to poach them from me. Yeah. And they tell me. Because now they're on their radar from a wealth standpoint. Based on the principles that you helped them establish when you started with you. Yeah. But they tell me, you know, Charles, the one thing that I appreciate about you, you never put any pressure, right? And you helped me when I had nothing and you saw me. Mm-hmm. And I think that part about I'm seeing them as they're a building, they tell me now you like family. Mm-hmm. So I think that 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 recognizes the culture that we have as minorities. We're very familiar, right? Yeah. Versus some other populations, they don't go through that. Yeah. So when my clients call me and say, Charles, you know what? I need to give money to my brother or sister or help out mom and dad i understand because i've been through that yeah. i'm not going to try to talk them out of it i build around that with their plan so yeah. i think that cultural competencies that i've been able to develop through the coaching relationship to understand the money stories and money history mm. helps me on the planning side because now just because it makes sense financially doesn't make sense doesn't mean it's gonna make sense for the actual person to actually implement if it conflicts with their money stories and their money beliefs so i would say you know I think we need to recognize that oftentimes we're playing dual roles. We are financial coaches and financial advisors and be okay with that. And what that means is sometimes you're going to lose some money from a productivity standpoint with a client, but be okay with it because you see the bigger picture. Once you get them past that rough patch, the amount of loyalty that you developed with that client, you can't beat. They're not going out. Yeah, you're you're (laughs) preaching now. I think there's, you know, and I think... Even this construct that you're explaining of developing the coaching aspect and what I just like to call it is good bedside manner. Um, I, 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 I think of financial coaching and I know there are financial coaches, obviously me and you know them in this space. Um, financial coaching needs to be a verb that all financial professionals utilize. That, that's just kind of where I am just because I know clients have this near and dear spot in their heart for where they spend their time and their in their money. And we get to sit in a seat to actually help them um, and partner with them on a lot of major decisions. So that becomes super emotional. And, and you've got to have the uh, you got to have the chops, if you will, to be able to navigate those type of potentially touchy s- subjects. Uh, I want to transition here. So hold on, hold on. one second, Dominique, what yeah. I would say is, though, I think I think this conversation we need to make sure that we're being full circle. So we're having it as minority professionals and we understand these things. But how do we get the majority to understand what we're speaking of? Because what I'm speaking of, that ability to develop and build, mm-hmm. that was only given to me at a minority firm. I don't think if I was at a majority firm, I'll be given that same amount of liberty, right? So what I'm saying is, as minorities, we can see these needs to be to have some dexterity, yeah, but how do yeah. you get the individuals at the Wells Fargo's, the Merrill Lynch's, the Goldman's to understand that when you're working with a minority advisor 
who you want to target the minority population because that's not what their choice is. That's what you're telling that they need to go get. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. why you're hiring them. Yeah. Right. How do you how do you build into their compensation model the understanding that it might take them a little bit longer to cultivate a relationship because of that lack of trust? How do you build into their compensation model to make sure that that they are not just always working with the hard client? They get some easy ones too. No, I think you, you bring up a great point. I think uh, I don't have all the answers. I would say it, firms, we know this in the space, firms, are, and, and we obviously we have relationships throughout our networks because of how long we've been in the business that we, we know good people with, with that are well-intentioned that are minorities or people of color that are trying to change these things. But what I would say is the intentionality has to be there. And since it hasn't been there for so long, I mean, financial planning as a profession is really like 60 years old. So yeah. in the last thing that we've been this this new age of awareness for everybody's contribution to this to this process, regardless of the, of the color of your skin, has only been an argument for arguably the last five years. A public so, argument. It's always been there, though. Yeah, it's well, no, it's, it's it's been there, but the, the 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 focus on changing it has only been like the last five years. And I guess my point in saying all that is, we need a long time of demonstrated intention in order to change that dynamic. So let's just pick on somebody. If we want big box firm A, Wells Fargo, to see yep. more advisors of color be successful in their ranks. They're going to have to, A, hire more advisors of color, and then they're going to have to take advisors of color that are successful and have those people mentor those people that they brought into the pipeline. And then inside of that ecosystem is how that happens. It's going to be See, really hard to get something from people that don't have it. So, I mean, I love my my white counterparts, but they don't know some of the cultural stuff that you just talked about. So when a client comes to me and say they want to tithe, I know what they're talking about. Like that's not everyday vernacular in all those firms. So I, I think those type of things have to be talked about. And if you don't have that competency, then you have to start to seek out, you know, relationships with, with people like Jumpstart because like, that's what we talk about. Like everybody that comes see, to the Dominique, pipeline, that's what we talk about. But see, Dominique, I think, I think that is only going to exacerbate the issue. I really think, what needs to happen is you need to do some cross training. So take the minority advisor, assign them a majority mentor and show that minority individual how to fish in the majority pond. Because if you think that the minority individual is going to be fed by minority clients extensively, then I think this is a self-fulfilling prophecy that's not going to work because we just don't have the wealth. So I really think part of the, 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 part, the, the other issue is a lot of people truly believe that minority advisors only work or only want to work with minority clients. And that, to me, is a farce. That is not true. And that is not sustainable. I've made that choice, but I suffered because of it. And mm. everybody does not have that. Everybody does not have that desire to do that. And we need to acknowledge that. So don't just when you get into a firm or an opportunity where you have to go find clients only talk to African-Americans if you're African-American. I think you have to have somewhere to start and there has to be a level of comfortability. I don't don't disagree with the, the solution of cross-training, but I, I guess at what juncture do you introduce that? Do you introduce it from jump with no experience? Do you introduce it when they got a little bit of experience and on the CFP track or some other type of track? Like, when do you introduce it? I think is kind of the question because that yeah. is a that's a delicate balance because at the end of the day, you still need to keep clients, right? You still have to have a, the ability to have those clients have the trust that they've deposited and that's grown over these years stay because but I, there's that problem, right, too. So, But I, but I would tell you this. <clears throat> you can have, and, and I'm not trying to be funny, right? You can have 50 clients, all minorities, right, and make... $100,000 a year. And you can have 10 clients that are all majorities and make that same. Who's working harder? So there's the aspect of burnout. So in my experience, what I'm realizing and what I tell everybody who's coming through, what I tell them is, listen, have balance. The same way we diversify our portfolios, mm -hmm. diversify your client base. If you choose to, if you're going to choose to focus on the minority side, understand that you're going to have some challenges that your white counterparts are not going to have. 
And oh, yeah. And I don't, I don't know. Well, at least at least my perspective has been that I don't think anybody's going into this like eye, eyes wide shut. I think they're 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 cognizant of that. And they're in the at least in the conversations I've had, they've been more mission focused and been like, you know, I'm not too much worried about that aspect of it for whatever reason. They're more focused on primarily on I want to help the community. And I'm like, OK, well, you know, just understand that this exists and it won't yeah. be like this forever. I don't think it will. I actually think the tide will turn and there will be um, a lot of the wealth transfer that allows people that want to f- focus specifically. And here's another thing. Um, and I, I don't I don't know that either one of us knew that we we're going to go down this trail, but I'm fine with it. I, I think it's, it's a, ne- a necessary topic that we have to discuss. But to say this, there are other ways you're going to have to look at being profitable in your firm. Like, so I, I read a lot of ADVs. You've probably seen a lot of ADVs. And, and when I'm breaking this down to people, the science of this, I'm like, here's a, here's a, here's a prime example. So I work with people that want to start their own firm and I'm working with an advisor right now. And the compliance person that I outsource this particular ADV review to took the four ways to get compensated that I put in the original draft and cut it down to two. And you can guess what they were probably used to all the stuff that the regulators just passed. And I'm like, well, no, 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 no. you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need to be able, you need to be able to get paid. And so I think that is a construct in the industry industry that's going to have to change because just asset center management, you're playing on two different fields. Like it's not level. It's going to be really hard for you to go gather assets in a community that hasn't accumulated assets yet. <laughs> it's only so many uh, relationships to go around. So until we get 20 years, 30, 40 years in the future and we have more wealth in our community, it's going to be really hard to take that profit model or business model into there and be successful with it. So you're going to have to be open to other things, I would say. You know what I think is funny, right? So I hired a, a coach last year, 2021, and the coach was working with me about my compensation models. And my fees are low compared to the majority of the industry based on the research that she completed. And she asked me, Charles, why are your fees so low? And I told her because I wanted to respect um, my vision when I started my firm to make sure that it is accessible to everybody. And then she asked me very clearly, she says, Charles, are your clients everybody? Are your clients the elite? Hmm. And I had to tell you know what, honestly, if I look back to what the original vision was and who my clients are now, all my clients are top 10% wage earners. <laughs> so I'm not really touching who I wanted to touch mm. initially. So that's uh, something that I have to solve. Yeah. But I say that the following, when I talk to my majority counterparts, my white counterparts, and we share a client fact pattern, I might charge this client $2,500 for a year. They're charging that same client $8,000. My client is pushing back not wanting to pay the $2,500. Their clients, oh, my God, thank you so much. So I think there's also that other dynamic Mm. when we think about compensation is are we respecting what our end client is willing to pay? And I think that's where we have a lot of disconnect in our demographic because we are trying to compare ourselves from the benchmark studies. Mm. that does not have a lot of minority advisors. So one thing that I would love to see you do at some point is if you can get some benchmark data. (laughs) Are you trying to give me another job, Charles? (laughs) Charles, trying to give me another job. No, I I think that's a great point. I I, I would say tangentially that the, um, the way that we have constructed this industry is very, very... It's like Frankenstein. It, like there's so many different parts put on to different areas. And I think it does well for anyone that is listening to this, thinking about the industry, if they're not scared off by this conversation, uh, <laughs> is to is to just realize that it really begins with your why. Start there. What are you doing this for? Like the, the recruiter question that you got asked or the mentor question that you got asked is a perfect one about, do you want to make money right now? Or do you want experience? Because you can't have both. It's very rare in any in industry when you're coming in, you get to have both. And you do have to choose. And there's there's pros and cons and opportunity costs associated with that. And I would just say, this is my 21st year in financial services. And by and large, what I've noticed is the outcomes that people experience when 
real financial advice is given far outweighs any type of monetary compensation I think I could ever get just because of, of how I'm wired. And I think ultimately, if, if people go into the industry with that, I'm just going to be, you know, Pollyanna enough to believe that eventually it's going to work out for them. It, now, it may not. It, there may be some bumps in the road because I've had bumps in the road. Believe me. Right. But at the end of the day, I think um, the, the level of satisfaction ends up being more more so outweighing some of the consequence. Uh, let me ask you this question. There's a lot of what I'm going to call bold promises being made throughout the industry in various forms. And I don't want to say what the motive is behind any of them or that any of them won't come to fruition. I'm just curious as to, you know, when we look at internship, this externship, this advisor development program, that where do you see all this coming to a head? Do you see this as a good thing? Do you see like like how do you see this helping um, develop people? Because you, you've already identified and let me just make this clear. You don't think there is a talent problem. You think there is a necessarily a problem around allocating resources of that talent in the right spots. Now, watch this. I think the real. So based off the question you just asked, I truly believe internships and externships are not beneficial unless a job is offered, period. And I think the more internships we have, more externships people experience without getting a job in our minority space is doing more harm than good. Why is that? Because they get the experience. I'm going I'm to play devil's advocate. They get the experience. Very simple. Experience means nothing without compensation, period. So if you do not have a job to follow, then what that means is you've spent time going down a rabbit hole that might not be fruitful. So think about this for a second. Okay. Charles, I can talk to I can talk to students about my experience and I can be very positive. Yep. Because I've never been burned. There's so many minority advisors who had internships with companies that led to no offers. They have a beautiful resume that has two internships on it, but they can't find a job. So whenever they're talking to someone else who wants to be an advisor, they're not talking to only people who have jobs. They're talking to people who tried it too, who struggled, who who didn't make it. Okay. So I think personally, we need more jobs offered and more success stories. That would change the trajectory, in my opinion, for the minorities in this profession, more so than any internship can offer. I also say, and I double down on this, when a minority person comes into a firm, right, allow them to work with majority clients, encourage them to, I firmly believe that because if you put them in this box of only being the person who's going to work with minority clients, that's going to be a challenge. So again, I love it. I like what everybody's doing, Yeah. but if it's not followed up with a real investment and I say real investment, a real investment is a salary that hits no, you by I, the line. I, I don't disagree with that. I think I, the opportunity is one thing. But a lot of people that come into this industry that take up these internships, externships, whatever's, um, are doing it with the hopes of not just sampling to see if this is something I could do, but with the hopes of there being an offer at the other end. And yeah, I don't know all the circumstances about every situation, but I would say if that is supposed to be a conduit to fixing the problem of seeing more talented individuals, regardless of skin color, getting into the right positions with the right fit, which is what you said earlier, actually, it, that is what has to happen. Uh, I'm going to throw this in here and see how you agree. And then like we I know we got to shut it down because uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm past your time. But a lot of people I come through and I sit in a very interesting seat. I know you know that I do, but I'll just for the sake of people listening. Not only do I run my own RIA, I talk to a lot of RIA owners I help build and scale firms, and I talk to people that are trying to come into the industry. So I see a lot of different perspectives. And the overwhelming perspective that I see that I'm trying to help change is that a lot of people coming into the industry are too picky about where they want to be. Let me clarify. Like nobody wants to do what you did and get dirt on their fingernails and go working for, and I've even said it before, so I apologize, for the broken dealer. Like nobody wants to do that. 
They only want to go work for a fee-only RIA doing financial planning. And I guess my point is, how realistic is that? Is that sustainable if we're going to fix the problem that you talked about earlier? Oh, I think you're frozen. Okay, of course not. Of course not. It's not realistic. I said, of course not. I mean, I don't think it's realistic. I think, I think part of the the challenge of the minority advisor is getting in the game. Once you're in the game, you have a job. It's easier to move laterally, left and right. It's easier to get these promotions. Right. The hard part is getting in, and if you limit yourself to RAs and you neglect the broken dealer, right? <laughs> Your ability to get into the game, right? The percentages of your success drops. If I had to throw out a number that I'm about to make up, it's probably 70%. Mm. Because the number one people that are still hiring to this day are the broken dealers. You're right. They, right? And I tell you, people you're that are right. Because, <clears throat> excuse me. They have the most amount of seats to field. They have more Correct. opportunities. Yeah. They have more. They're bigger. Correct. They serve more clients. And so I've always maintained that. You know, go learn, uh, go get all the experience that you talked about that you got in the top half of this and then pivot two, three years down the line if you don't like the situation. But at least you got experience, you're licensed um, and and you've and you've made some connections. You, you've you got some a track record and you're not just I don't have any experience. But everybody's not having that conversation that we're having right now because people are saying you deserve to be selected, <coughs> right? They're telling you, you go to college, you go through a CFP program, you get the designation. Now you need to get a job that is a perfect fit right now. Well, the reality is there's a thing called a perfect fit tomorrow. So for me, I always knew I wanted to have my own firm. But like I said before, I know for a fact that I would not have been successful if I would have did it on my own day one. I know that about me specifically. Right. So it made sense for me to go get that experience. Although the firm was not doing it the way I wanted to do it, I was able to figure out how I wanted to do it on someone else's dime before I started my own. And I think a lot of people now coming out of school, they're not thinking about it like that. They're they're playing checkers versus playing chess. Mm. And I think we really need to like to play in chess and be very strategic about every move that we make. And I don't think from what I'm seeing, a lot of people have that forethought to think a little bit further, three, four, five years down the line. The other thing that I'll say as a career changer, I was a career changer. I think the best thing that I did for me was I changed early. I mm. talked to a lot of career changers, people who were, I kid you not, I was talking to this one young lady. She was, I want to say 30. She was high up in the oil and gas company making 150 total comp, maybe 250. She says, Charles, I want to do what you do. I said, cool, become a financial advisor. Just know you're going to take a pay cut. She said, how much? I said, I don't know. You'll probably get 80000 with your skills and whatnot. She said, oh, okay. I said, do it now. Don't wait. She says, why? I said, because next year you're going to make more. And every year you make more money in your main job, it's going to be that much harder for you to switch. And mm, that's a good point. Think about it. You know? And, and for me, I get really frustrated with those who want to be in the profession but they don't want to jump. They want to straddle the fence. And I get it. I understand why you're doing it because you have other responsibilities. But the problem that you're doing for yourself is there's never going to be a perfect time to jump. You just got to no, go for it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's tweetable. I'm going to have to mark that. That's Because I think I recently heard this, uh, and I'm really enjoying this conversation. I appreciate you, Charles. I, I think uh, just, just being real, uh, a lot of people don't hear it this way um, all the time because people are – People have their motives. I'm sorry. The construct has its motives for getting you down certain tracks. And so people just reinforce those and listen to those. And that's the reason why I, I will maintain to do jumpstart because I'm always going to tell people 100%. Like, like I, don't, I don't think that's a good idea. Like, you shouldn't do that. But anyways, what I was saying is I think the um, – I recently heard that, uh, this said this way. People are always focused on return on investment, ROI, ROI. But you need to be thinking about COI, which is the cost of inaction. And the cost of inaction is what I just thought about what you said. Every year you're going to take a, another pay bump and it's going to be that much harder to, loo- uh, to, um, to leave. But then that break even also balloons out. Like your break even might be three, four years, depending on what you do. I always give the story. You know, I started this industry 
98, I got a job basically starting at the bottom back in 2010, starting at 60. Six years later, because of the, the value I gave to the firm, I was, you know, whatever, mid 275, 275, 300, whatever that number is, five times. And that was because of the impact that I made. And the break-even analysis, I mean, my point is, is people wait for that perfect jump. And what they're doing is giving up years of experience they could be building. And that break-even is usually going to catch up a lot sooner if you go ahead and make the jump now, to your point, versus waiting. Um, And one of the things I see people wait and do is go do CFP. Instead of, I'm like, no, do it with, do it along Correct. with if you're going to do it at all. Um, so no, this I has agree. been great. This has been great, man. Uh, well, I know you have a soundbite for us because this is a podcast to help empower tomorrow's private, <laughs> tomorrow's financial <laughs> professional with, I can't talk, tomorrow's professional tool, uh, financial professional with tools to serve their client. There we go. At the next level. And so in that context, uh, what would you leave uh, as a word of wisdom or words of wisdom with the audience? Yeah, I mean, I think very simply what I'll say is that there's only so much education that you can get. The real education comes when you interact with clients and you work with them directly. So I encourage all of you guys to have these conversations, understand money stories, understand financial behaviors, because that's really what we're trying to change. Mm. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't really add to that all the time. I'm telling people the education is great, but the 25 years of marriage now, and three grown kids has really helped the most. <laughs> well, now, so, and I know that's what my sound bite, but I'll also add, make sure you do financial planning or you do this industry in a way that's authentic to you. Cause mm. I can tell you, I've tried to quit at least five times. And every time I tried to quit or go to a different firm, I came back to home because I remember, to your point, my why. Mm-hmm. So everything that I'm doing fits within my s- scope of values, right? And as long as you do that, you can't go wrong. So find a place that matches that, and you'll definitely be successful. Hey Amen. I can't, I can't, I can't um, add more to that. Charles, um, thank you for keeping it real, my brother, uh, and appreciate the deposit into the community. And of course, I'll be, I'll be. I'll be keeping an eye on you, but I, I know that there's nothing but success in your future. So I, I really appreciate it, man. And I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Talk to you. Bye-bye. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Before we go, just a few things. The best way to retain what you just learned is to do more than just listen. You first might want to write down your most important takeaway and then give yourself a deadline to apply it. For bonus points, you might also let someone hold you accountable to that deadline. And remember, the only way more people will know about this podcast is if you share it. You can do that by sharing a link to this episode on your social media or by leaving a review on iTunes so that it reaches a wider audience. I'd appreciate if you took the time to do either or both. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about how Jumpstart can help you become a next generation financial professional or partner with you in finding next generation talent for your organization, send us an email at hello at jumpstartcoachinglab.com just in case you needed to get a pen to write that down. That's hello at jumpstartcoachinglab.com. Bye for now until our next conversation.